0: The Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, July 13th, we are studying Psalm 24. The Lord calls his people to worship him as the creator of all things, the King of Glory. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Boisclair. Pastor Boisclair serves at Bethesda and Faith Lutheran churches in North St. Louis County, Missouri. Pastor Boisclair, welcome back to Sharp Iron.
1: Oh, it's great to be here to uh, wield the sword of the Spirit fully sharpened.
0: God be praised. Pastor Boyce Clear, we have Psalm 24 before us today. What should we know as we prepare to look at this psalm? What's some background information, any helpful context that'll help us with these words?
1: Oh, I, I, my own experience with it, it was a psalm that was well loved by our Sunday school superintendent when I was knee high to a grasshopper. And, and it was, I always thought it was so cool because of the, the dialogue that goes on in it. Um, it, it is, it is a majestic, uh, song of praise to our God and and is a confession to the world that he is not only the God of Israel, but he's also the God of the entire world and uh, he owns it. <laughs> and that's kind of the idea. That uh, Some of the commentators that I looked at mentioned that it's kind of like comes in a nice uh, succession here. There's Psalm 22, which of course is the Psalm of the crucified Christ, you know, I mean, at least it's his song or the, the uh, servant of God that suffers uh, for his faithfulness. And then uh, then, of course, there is the the most popular, the most well-known psalm that is right before it, which is uh, uh, the Good Shepherd Psalm. <laughs> and then you have this astounding uh, triumph of a psalm, which is similar to uh, also a uh, psalm 27 i believe or well which which is kind of like the psalm that, that speaks of our lord's ascension mm-hmm. so the, and this is basically it's connected by, at least by conservative commentators with the uh, the action of of david the king to bring the ark of the covenant into uh, the city of jerusalem uh, from uh, Obed Edom and uh, so it's kind of like uh, the, it, it may be a liturgical uh, uh, liturgy or a liturgy that is spoken as as the uh, ark is brought into the city and into its resting place at the time which they set up a, a tabernacle uh, in in Jerusalem and then of course Solomon built the temple. Mm-hmm.
0: A little bit, let's talk a little bit more about the progression that you've mentioned between Psalm 22, 23, and 24, and we're not studying every single Psalm here on Sharper Iron right now. We're, we've picked out a few. We did look at Psalm 22 previously. We actually skipped over 23 and here we are in, in 24 right now, but I think Psalm 23 is well known such that we, we all have an idea of, of what's there, the good shepherd dwelling in his house forever. And just so that I and I know that you know you don't always see necessarily a progression from one psalm to the next, but we did talk about with Psalm 22 how that you do see a bit of a progression from you know the great suffering, the passion of our Lord there in Psalm 22, the resurrection that's certainly inherent toward the end, and then into the the leading and guiding you know, through the valley of the shadow and death into the house of the Lord forever in Psalm 23. And so now then, like, this is kind of the Ascension Psalm. Is that kind of the, the progression that we're talking about?
1: Yes, it, it also is, is considered to be an Advent Psalm. Uh, you know, obviously there is the great Advent hymn uh, um, where, you know, um, uh, basically using mm-hmm. this particular psalm you know lift up your heads O ye gates and yeah. be ye lifted up ye everlasting doors that the king of glory may come in uh so so this uh some th- th- it's interesting any any uh it's a triumphal uh coming of our lord and of course it's speaking of yahweh it's speaking of 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 uh, and then of course that's Lord, which is Christ. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, so so it, it has been associated with his descent into hell by an apocryphal gospel of Nicodemus, um, and, and so, you know, it, 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 uh, it, it, it's kind of the question is asked, well, why is, um, uh, uh, I think it was um, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a great uh, Baptist preacher from the 19th century, says, well, why do they repeat, uh, you know, lift up your heads uh, twice? And, and he says the first time it was that he was coming to Bethlehem, and then the second time was that he was uh, ascending into heaven. So it's 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 uh, kind of like an uh, an advent and ascension hymn.
0: Well, I mean, you know, the advent connection, I think, and, and we'll read this in a moment, is certainly very clear because the that advent hymn, "Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates," I think, is one of the the better known ones among us. And so I, I do I often associate this psalm with the season of advent, and with the the season of advent, I I think we see a a dual purpose, not only for the ascension of our Lord. But also, and, and as you said, his coming into Bethlehem, but then also his coming on the last day, the season of Advent. And I know here we are, and this is July, so it's, it seems like Advent's a long way away. But the season of Advent has that two, two-pronged two focus where, on the one hand, yes, we're anticipating Christ's coming to us you know, as we celebrate him at Christmas, but also we're looking forward to Christ's coming on the last day. And I think that connection with this psalm to Advent it invites us as we reflect on it today to consider how it points us also to that coming of our Lord.
1: Exactly. I think that's that's probably, it's probably greater geared toward that um, a, a second coming, uh, you know, day of judgment kind of uh, presence of the Lord in
0: triumph. Well, let's go ahead and look at this. Well, sorry, one more thing, Pastor Boyce-Claire, before we look at the psalm, you mentioned the historical context could be david bringing the ark into jerusalem which i believe is recorded in second samuel is there is there any other would this then have been used in other cases perhaps when the ark had gone out before the people in battle and coming back in or is it more of just a one-time thing
1: it's it's good that you mentioned that because the commentators do believe that because as we know uh you know the when the ark of the covenant was brought into uh Canaan, uh, when when it was conquered by Joshua and the people, children of Israel, that they set up the sanctuary at Shiloh, and and uh, there, of course, it was the tabernacle, obviously, from uh, the desert that Moses had built, and uh, the um, Ark of the Covenant would then uh, sometimes be taken out, and in that case, of course, Eli, the high priest Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, went out with the army with the ark, but then the Philistines uh, conquered the army and, and captured the ark. But then, uh, th- then they had a rough time of it, probably having some of the bubonic plague uh, visited upon them, and they brought the ark back, or, or they let the ark be brought back by two milk cows uh, into uh, uh, near Jerusalem, and, and it was kept at Baal Judah a- until the time of David. And and then of course he uh, brought the ark to Jerusalem, and but it was but definitely maybe even after he brought it into Jerusalem, it may have been taken out uh, in battles that were fought uh, during the kingdom of Israel,
0: right? Thus giving this Psalm, perhaps another, it's more than just a one-time thing, but a continued use within the life of worship in the people of Israel, in the old Testament. And then as we've already said, how it continues to find its place in our worship today, the season of Advent and and really a multiple, multiple, multiple faceted use here. As we look at Psalm 24, let's go ahead and, and read the text. This is a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof Pastor Boyce-Claire, you mentioned the first verse, that everything belongs to the Lord in your introduction. What, what is David saying in those first two verses?
1: Well, uh, that um, he's not only uh, limited to uh, the land of Israel. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm so touched by what Solomon prayed to the Lord when he dedicated the temple, when he said, um, he says, the heavens, even the heavens of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. And, 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 and the house of, of the Lord, of course, is a very sacred place. And, and, and I think it figures into this particular Psalm, but, but he is so much greater. Uh, you know, his throne is heaven and his footstool is the earth. And, and, and this reminds, uh, reminds people that uh, he is the creator of all, that he is actually the God of all people, uh, you know, no matter who they are and 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 in this world that he created is his world and and that that's kind of uh, you know a, a very universal confession of faith about their about the God of Israel that he is not only uh, their God because everybody had their own God and and uh, you know it's interesting when the king of Assyria was threatening Hezekiah he says well look at what the gods of of these other nations have done they they still let them be conquered by me but your God is you know is no match for m- me and my God <laughs> and then and, and of course uh, you know the the, the answer back fr- through prophet Isaiah is you know the daughter of Zion and uh, laughs at you, and and uh, you know, just it's just marvelous how how uh, in in the Word of God how how uh, the truth of God's being the universal uh, creator of the universe yeah, to all people.
0: and that fact that God created all things means that He owns all things. That's the implication for this Psalm, and that's the implication then for for all people. That if there aren't just these sort of national gods, like there's the God of Assyria and the God of Canaan and the God of Babylon and the gods of Egypt, but no, there's actually one God, and he's the one who res- who's responsible for making it all, then it, it all still belongs to him. Which means that what happened in the past in God's creation has an ongoing reality and effect in, in everyone's life, not just in the people of Israel's life, but in everyone's life.
1: You know, you probably heard the joke about uh, uh, the, the uh, you know, a contest between uh, maybe a scientist or some other proud person that says, uh, well, I can I can. Create something from nothing, just like you, and and uh, then then they say, well, all I, ha- I need is some dirt, and God says, get your own dirt, <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> create your own dirt. <laughs> it's my dirt; I created it.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, this is—I mean, this is an important point, and it's it's often a a very important aspect of the Christian confession. Particularly in the the face of a pagan religion or, or one who would not recognize any truth to the scriptures, is that the one true God has revealed Himself in the fact that He did create everything, and the fact that He did create everything, including you, it means that there's there's this relationship between you and Him that somehow you got to deal with. And I mean I think of some of the the sermons that get preached in the book of Acts we recently studied there in on here on sharper iron and and Paul in Acts 17 in Athens and earlier in I believe Lystra, you know, he makes this point that look, everything around you you see, it's made by the one true God. Let me tell you more about him. I think of even the the prophet Jonah when he's on the the boat headed the wrong way. This is the confession that he gives to those sailors is that I worship the God who made all of this. And this is a this is a key point for still for our Christian confession today.
1: Uh, yeah. And, and, and in looking in jo- at Jonah as well, it's interesting that that there's, you know, in the commentary on the psalm, you know, they mentioned the uh, Jonah chapter two, where he uh, is praying like a, 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 a psalm to to the Lord. It's out in this in the middle of the sea. I mean, the the, uh, the Israelites uh, were afraid of the sea. That that was, that was caused great deal of, of fear to them. In the new heavens and the new earth that's mentioned in Revelation, it says there will be no longer any sea. But you have Jonah confessing, the Lord made this sea, too, even though we don't like it. <laughs> that's
0: right. Well, and, and here in Psalm 24, David speaks of the Lord founding the world upon the seas and upon the rivers, that, that even here within the bounds of this creation— As he says elsewhere, he's the one that sets the limits to the sea and the land that, you know, the world that he created doesn't sort of sink down into the depths apart from his control, but he actually establishes his creation, even upon those elements that might seem uncontrollable or chaotic to us.
1: Exactly, and that that just that emphasizes it. It's interesting that Henry Leupold, uh, who um, or H. C. Leupold, uh, who uh, commented on, he'd be a conservative Lutheran, you know, he said, well, he would translate that he established it beside the seas and, and beside the rivers, you know, so he's thinking more of a like in a realistic sort of way. But right. you know, sometimes the psalms speak in a figurative or a a, um, a poetic sort of manner. You know, uh, the idea was that the that that the fountains of the great deep are under us. I mean, obviously, anybody can tell you, and, and especially in some of our arid parts of the country, we're thankful that there is water underneath uh, the earth. And so in this particular case, uh, you know, there's the fountains underneath uh, uh, the surface of land and, and so on. But I think what you said is very important, is that his His uh, almighty power establishes uh, the earth.
0: Mm. Now, you were mentioning to me before we started this conversation that Paul quotes from Psalm 24 in first Corinthians how does Paul make use of this passage what's the application he draws
1: well uh, at that time uh, the situation was in the in ancient Rome um, the uh, uh, the Romans used to sacrifice an enormous amount of, of livestock uh, they, they they sacrificed like thousands of animals at a time well of course even in if you look at the the uh jewish of course practice in 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 israel in the first century too they 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 sacrificed a lot and so you you just kill all of these all of these cat heads of cattle and then you well you didn't want to put it to waste so you put it in the meat market and so he's uh, when in St. Paul's uh, first letter to the Corinthians, uh, he, he says that, you know, the, the problem with it is, is that this food or this uh, uh, this uh, beef that was slaughtered was offered to an idol. And, uh, and, and in 1 and Corinthians 10, uh, verse 20, beginning verse 25, it says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, and then it goes on. Then he quotes from the psalm, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So in other words, it's all God's uh, creation, uh, the cattle from a thousand hills as another Psalm puts it. If If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered to in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And, 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 and so, in, in other words, the whole point of this is. Is that it is sanctified by the word and prayer, and and what's interesting is that uh, even the rabbis considered this particular psalm a psalm for the prayer before one would eat, hmm. and and so in that particular case, is is the apostle Paul says, you know this 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 uh, uh, meat w- was created by God, and and you know, but but I mean if if somebody's conscience is snarled up on it, then perhaps uh, you would refrain from eating it. Hmm.
0: But the point that he makes in bringing up Psalm 24 would be that the fact that it was sacrificed to an idol doesn't change the fact whose cattle it was, whose meat it is, and who's the one giving it to you. Because the idol in reality is nothing, which is certainly a theme we see elsewhere in the Psalms. And and so Paul, Paul uses... The psalm to make that point before he does go on to bring up the matter of the neighbor's conscience, because that's what that's what really is going to end up determining the way the Christian acts in that setting. But at least for our purposes, primarily to see that that Paul makes the point, look, even if there is an idol who's claiming this meat as his own. He's nothing. And so it actually belongs to the true God. And this I mean, that really I think informs how we think of this in Psalm twenty four, that when we see see the earth as the Lord's in the fullness thereof, this is God not only laying claim to everything that there is, including you and me, but it's also him laying claim to being the only true God.
1: Exactly, and I think that's the that's that's the point that he makes. Uh, you know, it's kind of it, it it's rather interesting that that like he, uh, in sharper iron was looking at the uh, book of Acts because they dealt with that whole issue uh, after the apostolic council in uh, uh, Acts fifteen. Uh, they say, you know as a matter of witness, not as a matter of, uh, not as a matter of something that they lay down for uh, time and eternity, you know, refrain from things that are strangled or, uh, you know, uh, blood and from things that are strangled in order for you to, uh, you know, the idea there is to, to heighten their witness uh, to those who are uh, Jewish, you know, in in that particular case. Mm.
0: Now, I, I often think of these first two verses of Psalm 24, in connection to what Jesus says, I believe it's to the Pharisees in the Gospels during Holy Week, they challenge him about paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus responds with very famous words where he says, you know, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And and we often you know, reflect on that verse when it comes to our relationship to government. But in the second half of that verse where Jesus says, render to God what is God's, I think Psalm 24 has often been one of my go-to verses to consider what that part means, that when I'm thinking about what am I going to render to God and what belongs to him, well, ultimately it all belongs to him. And so when when Jesus speaks those words, yes, there is application to how we act under civil government, but there's an even broader application to what it means to live as a Christian in, in every single aspect of my life.
1: Oh, absolutely, and and as we see, we will see that in 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 just the verses that come right after this.
0: So we've got the first two verses. Then David has very clearly established who is the creator of all things, who is the owner of all things. I suppose we should also say who is the preserver of all things. You know, Christians do not believe in a, a the God of the deist who sort of winds the clock and lets it go. The fact that God creates it all and owns it all also means that He preserves it all, which is a. A doctrine that we shouldn't forget and a doctrine, I think, that that provides us great comfort to know that God is still quite active within his creation.
1: Oh absolutely and and, uh, and and I think that's the uh, yeah, deism, of course, is kind of like the idea God doesn't want to be bothered. you know if you ever if you ever hear anybody say to you, well, God has more important things to th- think about, well he, he concerns himself with the number of hairs on every in- human being's head and and every little sparrow that falls, he's concerned about that too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right that's right so we've david has established that that the lord is the creator owner and preserver of all things and then the question turns to who shall ascend the hill of the lord who shall stand in his holy place what are what are these two questions i suppose in parallel that david is asking here
1: Yes uh so so who may approach god um you know obviously in the old testament they wanted to emphasize the fact that sin would would separate put a separation between god and his people as isaiah says uh, in this particular case, you know, uh, who can uh, dare to come uh, to the, the mountain of, of his sanctuary or come into his sanctuary? Uh, you know, it's interesting. The words that are used here is the word stand. Uh, it's kind of the word for uh, uh, nakom, uh, which mean or kom, which means place. You know, in other words, that's where the temple is. Uh, you know, we're reminded of Psalm one hundred thirty. It says, "If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared." In this particular case, it's it's like, uh, "How can I stand before the righteous and holy God?" Which is kind of like a question we would ask uh, when we meet God on Judgment Day.
0: I appreciate you bringing up Psalm 130. I think that the way uh, is that a, is that a Psalm of David also the, the way the psalmist speaks, which if it's not David, the way the psalmist speaks there is, I think, will help us as we consider this question because who who could stand if God were to hold on to our iniquities and count them instead of forgive?
1: Yeah, it's a song of a sense, probably. Okay. You know, it's probably probably again, uh, uh, it's it's a penitential psalm, right. obviously.
0: Right. Okay, so before we before we move on from the question, the Hill of the Lord, the holy place, what's the the reference to the Hill of the Lord particularly?
1: Um, you know uh, perhaps this would be where they you know they want to try to connect this or they see this that David composed this or it was composed uh, at when when uh, the ark was first brought into Jerusalem so there was um, you know at, at, a, at a in a high place uh, I wonder if it could have been the uh, threshing f- floor of Arauna or ornin uh, in in um, uh, in Chronicles, of course, and, and I know I, there's a brother pastor that disputed this, but it says that it was the place where, um, um, where Abraham offered Isaac. Uh, it was the, the land of, in the land of Moriah. Uh, and and so and, you know this place has is quite a quite an astounding uh pedigree in terms of its uh connection with with what is holy so in in other words where where god has put his name or where god uh you know and in other words like we could think even in in our own sanctuaries you know how can we stand before god uh, and so our first reaction of course is to confess our sins mm. and 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 that is what that does the other the other point is is who is able to do this, well, guess what? There is only one, Jesus. He was the one that's able to stand before the Lord and, uh, you know, and proclaim the righteousness of of the people that receive his righteousness.
0: Right. That That's right. I, these questions, you know, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The idea of, of going up before God certainly is a very prominent theme within the Old Testament. You think about Moses going up before God or Elijah going up a mountain later to to be with God and, and who shall go up to the Lord's eventually temple on Mount Zion. That's kind of the, the question that we've got and the question we're going to wrestle with and, and you've already given us the key is that this can only happen through Jesus Christ. So we're going to see how that works out in the language of Psalm 24. We're going to do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Psalm 24 with Pastor David boyce We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, July 13th. We're studying Psalm 24 with Pastor David Boisclair. He serves at Bethesda and Faith Lutheran churches in North St. Louis County, Missouri. Pastor Boisclair, prior to the break, we began to consider the question in verse 3 Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? and you're you're going to connect this to Jesus and we're going to see how that works. How does how does David begin the answer? He talks about someone who has clean hands, a pure heart. What what is David envisioning as he answers the question in Psalm 24?
1: Well, actually somebody who is without sin uh you know in other words uh, when when you're talking about clean hands are your hands red with blood uh like Cain's hands was with the blood of his brother or are your hands uh perverted or or soiled by uh, you know, immorality, or are they soiled by uh, a bribe that you took? Uh, you know, or, or, you know another worry? Have you stolen? You know, it's kind of like uh, you know, basically ten commandments type of stuff that's going on here. But it's not only a matter of what is done, but it's also that it has a pure heart. So in other words, uh, the Ten Commandments do not only forbid us to sin against God uh, by a murder or a theft or immorality or, a, you know, in, in those ways, uh, but also by uh, how we think in our heart.
0: So we, we have within those two answers, clean hands and a pure heart, we have the totality of the commandments, though perhaps in a, a reverse order in terms of the tables, we could think of the clean hands as one who has kept the second table of the law, the keeping your or loving your neighbor as yourself, and then the pure heart, that would be the first table of the law, loving the Lord your God with all that you are. This is the the one who who does this. He is the one who gets to ascend the hill of the Lord,
1: and then and then after that, of course, you have first table where where it's that you uh, lift up your soul to what is false. Uh, as as commentators point out, that that refers to idols. Uh, So, so in other words, you have not committed idolatry, uh, you know, because it, it is, uh, but again, it it could also refer to uh, the eighth commandment, thou shalt not, you know, we shouldn't lie or we shouldn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, put a fraud on anything, which is like the ninth commandment. Uh, You know, we do not uh, seek to get our neighbor's house uh, or obtain it by a show of right, which is fraud. You know, so that that's that, there's all of that that goes that's in play there, uh, and and um, does not swear deceitfully. That that of course is the second commandment,
0: mm, right? I've I've always connected the does not lift up his soul to what is false to idolatry. I think it, and that that ties in with what we were talking about with the first two verses of this psalm, where David sets out very clearly who the true God is, what he's done. And now as he he begins to think about the one who will ascend to him, well, it's not going to be an idolater, but it must be one who, who worships the true God alone.
1: Yes, and and, um, uh, the thing is, it's only Christians, only people that worship the true God by uh, being uh, reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit through holy baptism, that are those that are able to even make a beginning in doing this. And of course, in verse 5, I think, if we look at that, we will see uh, maybe more in detail what goes on.
0: Well, before we move to verse 5, just that language of of lifting up his soul in, in approaching you know the true God. I'm not going to lift my soul up to an idol. Rather, and this is the language actually, Psalm 25 begins with, "To you, O Lord, to Yahweh, to the true God, I will lift up my soul." I, mm-hmm. I think maybe there's a, a bit of an echo here to the way the preface to the service of the sacrament begins. You know, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Uh, perhaps there's a an echo of of Psalm 24 in a little. I mean, in a, to a degree, this oh, yeah. idea of go ahead.
1: Oh, most, most assuredly. I, I, I think to you, Yahweh, I lift up my soul. I mean, it's and then and that's basically what goes on in the liturgy. You know, we are, you know, God's, uh, you know, the people say, uh, you know, the, the pastor says, the Lord be with you, and then they say, and with your spirit. So, you know, the Lord has put you into that office, now carry out your duty, buddy. And so he says, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord, and it's, uh, you you know the whole the whole liturgy of of uh, the lord's supper is so beautifully expressed here.
0: Well and i i think you know that the what you said the lord be with you and with thy spirit really fits in with this whole with psalm 24 as well because the only way that any of us will lift up our hearts to him is if he comes to us first if if he is the one who draws us to himself that i mean we can't we're not going to lift up our hearts or our souls to him of our own will or reason or strength, he must draw us to himself. And so before we can even say, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. The Lord must be with us as pastor and people so that we do, in fact, do that.
1: Oh yes, most assur- most assuredly, and that yeah, we love him because he first loved us, and and uh, the, and he we say back to him what he says to us, you know, like your children, uh, you know, you teach right. them, uh, and and they say back to dad and mom what what dad and mom have said to them.
0: That's right, that's right. So into verse five, then this one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who is not participating in idolatry, he receives this promise blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the god of his salvation. What is what is David saying there?
1: Yes, uh, that, that word for righteousness is the righteousness that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ, which is an imputed, which is a, uh, give, uh, which is a um, bestowed righteousness. Uh, so, so the blessing of the Lord is the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, of course, uh, commentators will say, well, if we look at it more strictly, it's like vindication. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. And in this case, of course, it, 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 I think the ascetic, the uh, which is righteous, uh, is, is the idea here, because everything, you know, we, we always look at God's word through Christ glasses. And and in this particular case, it's it's how it's basically shows us, you know, the the dynamics or the manner in which God makes us right and 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 just and worthy to stand before Him. It is in the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Mm. Well, and I think this is where we really see the connection from Psalm 24 to the work of Christ and how we answer this question, so that we are among those who do get to ascend to God's presence. So I mean, when I look at my life and my thoughts, when I look at my own hands and heart, I don't see cleanliness or purity. The only one who who can say that about himself because of the way he's acted is the Lord Jesus Christ. He who he is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. When then God gives that righteousness to me as as verse 5 says, then God looks upon me with Christ's glasses on himself. He looks at me and sees not my sinfulness, but instead he sees the clean heart and the in the or excuse me, the clean hands and the pure heart of Christ. And in that way, because I am in Christ, I get to ascend into God's presence not because of my own works, but because of his.
1: Yes, and, and, the, and the wonder of it is when we uh, confess our sins and receive his absolution, his forgiveness, we are looking at ourselves as he looks at us. Obviously, the law condemns us, but we also look at ourselves uh, by the grace of God through the, the gospel as, as, as forgiven sinners. And, and uh, so that's the whole part of what repentance is all about. The whole process is to, for us to look at ourselves as God looks at us in Christ.
0: Mm. Uh, this verse 5 I, I've always considered a very important one when we talk about what the righteousness of God is. That famous phrase that Luther wrestled with, what does it mean to have the righteousness of God? And the, the turning point for him was when he, he realized, as the, the text from Romans 1 was putting before him, That the righteousness of God is not the righteousness that he did for God, but rather the righteousness that God gave to him. And here in in Psalm 24, verse 5, this is, I think, one of the clearest places in the scriptures where we see that the, the way of God speaking, that righteousness is his gift to us. Something that, as you said, he imputes upon us, he bestows upon us.
1: Yeah, and I think it can be like in the song of, uh, of the St. Louis Seminary. His strong word bespeaks us righteous, uh, bright with uh, his own holiness or thine own holiness. It's, a, it's addressed to our Lord Jesus. You know, your strong word bespeaks us righteous. Uh, the, the whole a called minister of Christ says, I forgive you all your sins in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus
0: Christ. And so far from this question in verse 3, leaving us in despair, who can do this? Certainly not I, Lord. In fact, this question fills us with with hope and joy because we see Christ as the one who has done this, who has the clean hands and a pure heart. And because he gives it to us, then this psalm becomes an an invitation to us to go with Christ into God's presence where there is joy and gladness.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And it, and it's and, and, and it's just a just a glorious uh, song of triumph uh, and that's why uh, you know all of us would say as we go to church, you know I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. you know come let us worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness mm-hmm. and, and, and it's it's just a, it's just a joy and, and empowering. Event in our lives.
0: So then, verse six: Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. What is David saying there?
1: Well, uh, there's there's a little bit of of uh, problem with uh, in the original Hebrew. It says, so, uh, you know, they would. And it's not exactly trans. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, O Jacob. Uh, so, so, um, it, when they put in the face of the God of Jacob, they're adding w- what the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the old Testament adds in there because they, they, they added in God of Jacob. Uh, you know, some of the commentators point out that, well, why don't we stick with the Hebrew here? Uh, we, let's remember that Jacob was the one that, uh, wrestled with, uh, the angel of the Lord. Uh, and, uh, you know, he says, uh, you know, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me, you know, you're and then the, then he touches his thigh, of course, the angel touches his thigh. And of course, we believe that that's our Lord Jesus in, in a pre incarnate uh, presence and and um, then he says your your name I'm going to change your name you're not going to be called Jacob anymore you're going to be called Israel because you have struggled with God and man and you have won uh, with the God man uh, and so uh, he is and, and Jacob says I have seen the face of God and I'm still alive and so he named the place Pen-, Pen Peniel or Penuel and so in in a sense. The, what's being said here is the generation. Okay, it is those people of God who have been reborn uh, by the Holy Spirit through Holy Baptism that are that type of people uh, to which God says, "Open the gates to this righteous generation." And and uh, they they are the ones that seek the face of God. And and um, you know, it, in in the sense, it's it's it, the, and I think it, it's some um, in his translation says these are Jacob. You know, they're like mm-hmm. Jacob, that, that they have sought to see the face of God, and they have. And guess what? They see it in the incarnate Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, you could use it the other way, too, and, and because there's a lot of places in our English translation, uh, and it could very well be understood that way, uh, where, where they add things uh, on the basis of the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament.
0: I really appreciate you bringing out that account from Jacob's life in Genesis 32. I think that adds quite a bit of of extra imagery to this psalm that we should pick up, that the way that Jacob saw the Lord, so we do in seeing Christ. The other thing that, that stands out to me, just by the use of Jacob's name, as, say, opposed to Israel, you know, instead of the God of Israel, you have the God of Jacob, Jacob being the name he had before the Lord changed it to Israel. The, the name Jacob means cheater, essentially. And when you look at, yeah. at Jacob's life, especially before that encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ in Genesis 32, you see just how often he he lived up to that name. And, and so it's striking that right after you hear, who's the one who's going to ascend to the hill of the Lord? It's the one with pure hands and a, and a, or a pure heart and clean hands. And, and the one, I mean, that's the guy, but then who's the first name you get? Well, it's Jacob. <laughs> and and so, yeah. I mean, if ever there was someone who had imputed righteousness, Jacob's up near the top of the list. I, that's a fantastic thing, I think.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I just love Jacob's confession. I am not worthy of the least of all your mercies and all the truth you have shown to your servant. So that was a, most certainly a humble, forgiven sinner. And, and 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 somebody that is of the generation of those that uh, seek the face of God. Mm.
0: So and and then I don't know, Pastor Pastor Boyce Keller, you want to take a stab at the word Sila there?
1: ah uh, <laughs> yes that means to kind of <laughs> it's sort of like we're looking at a, a, a page of music because uh, the Psalms are the hymn book of of uh, the people of Israel and and so in that that place is let's let's bring up the music or, or it, it's kind of sometimes translated in Greek it's translated as pause but mm-hmm. it, it, it I think in the Hebrew it it, it is uh, the word selah. Uh, or, or Sela is, is where, um, uh, you know, it means to, to, um, bring up the sound or to, mm-hmm. to, uh, heighten the, heighten the accompaniment.
0: My, my understanding of the word Sela or Sela has always been that it's one of those words that we're really, we, there's some pretty good guesses out there, but we're really not quite sure exactly what it means, which is why you hardly ever see it translated.
1: Yes and I think that the, and so it's <laughs> left untranslated. Sorry. Well I mean even the the word mizmor which is at the beginning a, of David a mizmor which is a which is a harmony or which is the word for psalm that's the Hebrew word for psalm. And so sometimes it's better to just leave these words untranslated because they have have that meaning. So here we're looking at the uh, the, the staff and the, and the notes that are being used. You might say so like so we it, it real it kind of gives us the point that this is a uh, a song that need, or this is a poem that needs to be sung or chanted.
0: Now I think of the the sung nature and the liturgical nature of this psalm in particular. Really comes out in verses seven through ten, which, as you said, there's a, a bit of a refrain. It seems that there's a back and forth going on. It gets repeated, not quite verbatim, but very close. Uh, what are some of the things we see as we we move into this section of lifting up your heads, O gates?
1: Well, it, it's like a dialogue. It's like a, a holy dialogue in, in in our worship of God. Uh, you know, like the angel said to the women as they came to the tomb of our Lord, it says, uh, you know, why are you seeking the living among the dead? Whom, who are you seeking? Even Christ uh, in meeting the, uh, those who arrested him, you know who do you want <laughs> i mean uh, so that's kind of the idea it just just adds to the the, the joy and, and the and the moment uh, of the sacred moment that we're worshiping
0: the lord so when when the david writes in verse 7 and and then again in verse 9 lift up your heads o gates o doors what does what is he talking about there
1: he says the gates are not big enough Hmm. You know, that's why it says like, you need to widen yourselves. I mean, Luther caught it in his, his, uh, uh, in his translation of his "Mach hoch die, Tour, die Tour mach weit," you know, in other words, the the the, the gate needs to be widened. Uh, although they said, uh, I guess uh, they they criticize his translation of where it's everlasting doors or it says doors on earth or something like that. But 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 uh, but Luther has the idea, you know, in other words, and maybe we have to kind of open the uh, get the opening. I remember one time doing um, uh, helping somebody move in. Uh, there was a huge, uh, uh, a bed, um, you know, mattress that we had to get in to the door. And we had to take the whole door off. And then we had to take the the frame of the door off. And I think we finally got it in, but we did some damage in getting it in. But we wanted to get the mattress in there so they could sleep that night. So, I mean, the point is, is that when the Lord comes, uh, you know, he not a stands at the door and knocks or something, you know, you know, that, that, that opening may be not big enough for him.
0: (laughs) Well, and so in, in speaking then to the gates to open up, there's also, I think a call to the worshipers to open up. And, you know, you brought up the advent hymn earlier, you lift up your heads, ye mighty gates. gates. Right. So Mm -hmm. the, the first stanza quotes directly there from Psalm 24 And then by, and I'm looking in in the LSB, hymn 341, stanza four says, Fling wide the portals of your heart, make it a temple set apart. So, I mean, it it seems like the, the call to the gates then also ends up being a call to the worshipers to similarly receive the Lord who's coming.
1: I think that's a very good, good uh, point. You know, whenever we speak about, whenever we deal with the word of God, it's like a beautiful, uh, precious diamond, which has so many facets. And, And all of those, all of that is true.
0: Well, and I'm I'm just keep I'm looking at the hymn even more and how it even it gets to the point that we were making earlier that the Lord must be the one to do these things. And in stanza five, we end up praying, Redeemer, come and open wide my heart to thee here, Lord, abide. So he is the one who who opens the gates of our hearts, who knocks and who opens as well. Now, as the, the gates are addressed here. In verses seven and nine, then I and I don't know if this is the right way to take it, but it seems that the gates ask the question, "Well, who's coming that we need to open wide and let him in?"
1: Yeah, it, it's it kind of takes you back to uh, a Palm Sunday when when our Lord was uh, enter, making his triumphal entry. You know, the whole city of Jerusalem said, "Who is this?" Uh, that's that's coming. You know, this is Jesus of Nazareth. You know, this is this is uh, the the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This is the Yahweh Zebaoth. Hmm.
0: So, what is what is that term? You you just threw some Hebrew out there for us, Pastor Boyce. Yeah. What what does that mean? <laughs>
1: well the Lord of hosts uh, we sing it in in the uh, in the liturgy of the Lord's Supper uh, you know where we sing the uh the sanctus holy 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 Lord God of sabaoth you know a lot of times we think it's Lord God of Sabbath or sabaoth sabaoth uh, is probably better which means the hosts and that, that only doesn't necessarily mean uh, like usually what's used for human armies uh you know large uh, groups of, of men in battle array uh but in this case, of course, the holy angels and the stars and all of the, uh, all of the uh, different array of, of powers that God can marshal at his command.
0: Uh, what's, the, what's the importance of recognizing this, that God is the God of, of hosts or the God of armies? Why is, I mean, we see this more often in the scriptures than we probably realize sometimes. Why is this an important designation for God?
1: Well, it's comforting, isn't it? Uh, you know, in the case of, uh, I think it was Elisha and his servant. Uh, you know, he, you know the, the city of Dothan or the city of Samaria, or a city was, was surrounded by the king of, of Syria, of Damascus. And, and uh, he said to his servant, he said, greater are those who are with us than those who are with them. Yeah. And, and so then he prayed to the Lord that the servant might uh, be able to see, and he saw surrounding the hosts or the armies of the king of Damascus, uh, the the fiery uh, angels of God that were surrounding them, the, the hosts and the armies that are God's uh, deck and call, but also the fact that they're, they're, that's our side, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, that he is on our side. If we have the Lord on our side, you know, even as St. Paul says, you know, who can lay any charge against God's elect? <laughs> it's god who justifies who you know he's on our side if god is for us who can be against us mm,
0: that's right and, and to take this back to what we started our conversation with in verses 1 and 2 that the lord created all things and he owns all things and he preserves all things there are there are places in the scriptures as well where this this concept that god is the god of armies where not only is he the commander of his own angelic armies or his own people but he, he has control even of the enemy armies as well, such that those forces that seem so so mighty against you that are arrayed in, in battle to do you harm, even those the Lord has under his command. And I mean, I think of some of the, the apocalyptic literature that describes battles, say, in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Gog of Magog, and, and even just what happens in the Exodus, how, how the Lord, when the Egyptian chariots start to go through the Red Sea, suddenly their wheels are becoming clogged and are difficult. Well, why is that? It's the Lord at work, even uh, at work against those armies, even they are under his control. And again, there's, there's great comfort to that.
1: Oh, yeah. And, 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 you know, even in looking at, I love the book of Acts, and I'm glad that you uh, made a study of it. Uh, I, I'm just in, in, just inspired by Gamaliel, who just says, now, guys, uh, you know, if, if, if this is from, uh, you know, a human source, it's going f- it, to, it'll, it'll pass, you know, like, like a lot of things that happen in our day and age, are things that pass. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop it. And and if you fight against it, you're fighting against God. Himself and and so and in, in like if, but of course uh, the apostle Paul says maybe maybe we uh, you know, kind of need to know what we're up against uh, we're against the principalities and powers the spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms you know in, in uh, Ephesians where he says about taking on the whole armor of God uh, you know in, in other words uh, we need God and his uh, and, and those who are his hosts to protect us and to give us the victory. Through
0: Christ, And we were talking about how this psalm is often an Advent psalm, and then the dual connection both to Christ's coming at Christmas, but then it's coming on the last day. And the language of the gates lifting up their heads reminds me of the way Christ speaks when he—I I believe this is in Luke—where he talks about all these things that will happen before the last day. And he, he tells his disciples, you know, when you see these things happening, lift up your heads— because your redemption is drawing nigh, and and we have that confidence to receive the Lord even in the midst of the turmoil of these last days, we have that confidence because we know who's coming to to take us.
1: Yeah, and and, and you know what's wonderful about this uh, ending of the psalm is is uh, you love the way it, it it everything is pretty much the same, you know. In the second time it's mentioned, but then the then it, then the Lord, of course, is is. Uh, Named differently, you know. First, it's the Lord Strong and Mighty, the Lord Mighty in Battle, which is the he- the great hero that uh, our Lord Jesus, who has uh, conquered sin, death, and the devil for us, He is the hero uh, uh, in, in in for our sake. Uh, he contends for us. But then the second time, it just shows, uh, you know, the Lord of Hosts, that that uh, very um, uh, plenipotentiary. Uh, name that he has that that just kind of is the is the real zinger
0: <laughs> that's right that's right what a, what a beautiful psalm pastor Boyce thank you for for studying it with us pastor david Boyce is pastor at bethesda and faith lutheran churches in north st louis county missouri helping us today with psalm 24 pastor Boyce thanks for being our guest today it's it's just been a joy god be with everyone I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, you and I ascend that hill as well, covered in his righteousness, so that we welcome him with joy when he returns on the last day. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.